Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. (laughs) (laughs) Your stupid countdown to when we start recording just doesn't matter, but it's really nice. Why? Yeah, I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> Grace always goes three, two, one. Record when we're not recording together. It's my latent dream of being a film director in action. Um, hello, everybody. We have a special episode for you guys this week. Um, basically, we have an interview with the amazing Nell Frizzell, which we um, did back in kind of May, I think, when uh, we both read her book the panic years which we absolutely loved i actually wrote a piece on the panic years um which nell is is quoted in and um we talk about her book on the pod a little bit and we talk about the subjects her book covers a lot but basically we were planning on keeping this ep until we launched the patreon got our hot new visuals and we were going to release nell as a special subscriber only episode but However, I <laughs> spilt a glass of water over Izzy's laptop yesterday, literally the second we stopped recording. And so we lost the whole episode because the minute Izzy's we finished this laptop brilliant is now episode. It was a brilliant a masterpiece. I like now that it's lost forever, I think it was our best episode. I know, but it was funny because we finished the episode and then I lay back on my bed and I said, that was a good one. And you were like, yes, two geniuses. And then we were just so happy. But the good news is, is now you guys get Nell for free in your ears this week. Um, For anyone who's not across her, she's a British journalist, writer and Vogue columnist. She'd written for The Guardian and Vice and The Telegraph and Elle and everywhere, basically. Um, She's a columnist at British Vogue and... Her first book, The Panic Years, is an exploration of bodies and babies and the big questions facing modern life. Yeah, so basically, as you guys will know, Izzy and I talked heaps about the age gap between your late 20s and kind of all of your 30s where you're bombarded with questions about by society and just by yourself and your friends and family. Do you want to have kids? When's the right time to have kids? Why do you want to have kids? Um, marriage, fertility issues, marriage, the whole, what's the word? I was going to say gamut, gamut. I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> the whole shebang. But like, you know, it, it now basically put a phrase on this time in our lives that we're all kind of in together. We're from, I don't even know if you just said this, I have two brain cells, but from basically your, your late twenties to your mid thirties, when you just feel like everyone around you is do- on different paths. So some people are buying homes, some people are traveling, some people are, have three kids already um, and you don't know, you're just confused about what to do and what you want out of life. And currently right now, as we've talked about on the pod, all of my friends around me, I just hit 30, are talking about kids, are talking about marriage, are like buying their first or second home. And it all just feels very overwhelming and confusing, um, especially the question of babies. 
Yes, because there does feel like this ticking physiological clock. So women are kind of forced to have conversations and think about this topic much earlier than we probably would like to. It's like our bodies haven't caught up with society. And so Noel wrote this amazing book and obviously went nutso. And she just talks to us. She's so wise. She's just a wise. Wise, funny. Yes. But when I was listening back to it, she just drops us with so many like truth bombs. And at the start, you might feel a bit anxious because she's talking about things. But if you listen to the whole thing, I just came away from listening back to it, feeling so kind of calm and relaxed and more confident about the path I was on. And I just really love her. Yeah, our editor texted us when she edited it uh, yesterday, just being like, wow, Nell is really coming out with all the truths. So yeah, it's, it's like a really interesting, brilliant listen. So we hope you'll love it. And then luckily for the Patreon subscribers, we ended up recording on Grace's laptop a whole episode for you guys. So that's a normal After Wit Drinks episode covering uh, Channing Tatum and Zoe Kravitz, Lord's new album, um, Kylie and Travis having a baby, and... The very important um, PSA that hot girls now drink whole milk. So that's over there, but enjoy our conversation with Nell. And as always, I was going to say rate, review, and subscribe, but we haven't said oh, that in like It's been a while years. since we've, yeah, not <laughs> I don't come know. out with one of those, but you can rate, if you review, want. and subscribe. Only, only review things. if you're saying that we look pretty in the new pictures. Otherwise, honestly, don't worry. We can... That we look pretty in the new pics and that Nell is amazing and that's it. Yes, and that Nell's amazing. And follow her on Instagram and buy her book, most importantly, buy her book over before you follow her on Instagram because we've got to support yeah. amazing writers and it's out in Australia, I think the US, New Zealand, UK, everywhere. Enjoy. Bye. Bye. I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. good. That was my microphone. I didn't just open our Zoom call with a fart. That would have been. That would be like peak lockdown. So you, you two are not together. You're not dyeing each other's hair, not doing anything cool. Oh my God. Have you listened? Of course. <laughs> that makes us so happy. Yeah, the hair dye was a. It actually is. It looking... doesn't look like a disaster at all. No, because I paid £200 to get a fix. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, in I an just, emergency appointment i um i dyed my hair for so long that when it grew out i discovered i was actually extremely gray and i'm quite into it i think I'm, gray I'm hair is so gray. chic I yeah think i think awesome. it's really cool and yeah. you can wear any i mean it hasn't gone quite gray enough but you can wear any color you can uh, you can do anything gray yeah enough. i love like gray gray but mine's mm. still kind of unsure of what it's doing so i'm box dying every three weeks currently which is very fun every three weeks blimey. it grows so fast and wow. i've been going gray since i was like 22 and i should have just embraced it then because it would have been you know like young and yeah stunning and gray and now i'm just like a haggard lockdown mess i don't think that's true <laughs> um although i've not got my glasses on maybe you are much- maybe you I are i might actually go get my glasses on sec you can inspect me Oh, fuck it out. You're a mess. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, how I feel. How is, how is everyone's uh, easing of lockdown going? I went to a pub for the first time last night in a year. How was yeah. the pub? Really weird. It's, like, it's really yeah. nice. I don't live in London anymore. Um, and there's this pub right by the river near where I live with a huge garden. And you basically order through your phone. And so you like click on your phone and then a woman arrives with a glass of red wine on a tray. I know it's we, quite, it's quite it's, magical, isn't it? It's better. It's literally it's better. It's much better. Yeah, we thought yeah. that when we had our first pub meal. Yeah. I like the slight lowering of human contact. I think it's a nice introduction. Me too. <laughs> to Cause I think we would have gone a bit mad if we were allowed straight back into clubs. Not that I ever want to go there again in my life, but I feel like I would, <laughs> I would have just found myself there. Yeah. Yes, and I there were moments where I was like, oh yeah, if you don't have to queue, then it's all much quicker. Like you could just decide. Like there's no hanging around for in London, fifteen minutes to get to the bar. Like that's and when you're being shuffled by city boys, and it's all mm. a bit grim. So I do think sitting at a table and getting someone to come and probably not very nice for the waitress. But I haven't spoken to anyone who works in a pub yet to see what they think. Yeah, 
I guess like I would I would probably prefer lack of contact lack of contact with customers, but that's why I was like the world's worst waitress. Ah, yeah, that's true. You don't have to do all the um like over the bar chat, which is probably because there's no tipping here either. So it's like, are you drinking a cup of red wine? That's what I I thought as well. I wish I was. So cool. (laughs) I wish you were. We usually are. We usually do drink when we do these, but um, you know, I'm trying to. I'm sorry, I've really killed the vibe. Although you know. (laughs) 11 o'clock. I'm, I'm not going to shame anyone if you do have a glass of wine. I think that'd be very cool. The yeah. earliest we ever did, I think, was 8 a.m. <laughs> we were well, doing a like Instagram live in Australia and we wanted to be on brand. So we got drunk on mimosas. But that was like, we nice. could, I really felt like a real mess after that. Yeah. It's killer. We um, celebrated May morning here on Saturday, which means that you get up very early and we all went for a swim and then we started drinking. It just means that by like, I was hung over by lunchtime mm-hmm. and that's really hard going. Like, it's really hard to muster up any energy. Yeah, day drinking so fun for about an hour. Yeah. And yeah. then it's all downhill. I was smoking yeah. out of my window at like 10 a.m. And I was like, this is not <laughs> cute behavior from a grown woman. Um, I don't know. I think it's fairly chic smoking out of your window. Yeah. I miss it. I miss it. Her boyfriend was like, that's why she does it. (laughs) Because someone said she looked (laughs) chic. Encouraging her. (laughs) Um, Anyway, we wanted to say we loved your book. It touches on something that we have been talking about in our circles. I mean, more than ever this year, I would say, or like in the past year, I've just turned 30. I turned 30 in March um, and had, I had less of a freak out than when I was turning 27 for some reason. Yeah. 29 fucked me up and Mm. 30 was relatively fine. Yeah. 30 was just a bit, I was just like, I just want to get over the hump and then I'm the youngest in this new decade and and that's good. But um. Yeah, the the panic years, it's so funny how there was just never like a phrase to actually describe how women are feeling right now. Can you just, for anyone who hasn't read your book, could you just explain it to our listeners? Yeah, so I think what happened to me was at 28, like a lot of people I've now discovered since the book came out, at 28 I came out of a long-term relationship him and I still trying to decide who ended it. <laughs> Every time I say in an interview that I broke up, he's like, I think you'll find we broke up. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, we're still really good friends. Uh, but um, I, and I got made redundant and I had to move back in with my mum. And like several things happened. People around me were buying houses or moving country or retraining like someone I knew who worked in magazines suddenly decided she wanted to be a radiographer and x-ray ill children so like huge things were happening and people started getting pregnant getting married and getting pregnant and I looked around and sort of thought what the hell is this we don't have you know I feel physiologically and emotionally in psychology as churned up, lost and untethered as I felt at sort of 16, you know, it really did feel like a second adolescence. And we had, I had no name for it. And I looked across and it felt like everyone was individually having what they thought was a private crisis. But we couldn't have all been having the same individual private crisis. Like that's, that's what you actually call a social movement. And I thought, God, whatever this is, I wish it had a name and I wish we had a shorthand so we could all talk about it. And then at 32, what was I? 32 or 33, I had my son and I looked back and I suddenly realised that what had kicked in at 28 was really a reckoning with my life and my fertility, unconsciously. I think I'd looked around and thought, well, I can't have a baby in this setup and I would probably quite like to have a baby And although that was like in itself quite a complicated thought. And I suddenly saw this whole thing as like an arc where the people who were making massive life changes towards the end of their 20s and in their 30s, a lot of it was to do with sort of understanding on a physical level, something which you've up until then only sort of abstractly talked about, which is you have a certain window of time in which to have children if you want to have children. And once that window of time closes, i.e. you get your menopause, that's it. Like the, the decision has gone. And so I had to kind of get 
I had to not only psychologically make the decision, like rationally and emotionally, is this something I wanted to do? I then had to build my life into a place where it could sustain children if I had them, if I was lucky enough to be able to get pregnant. And so it's been interesting talking to people because I think the reaction to the book, hundreds of people have said, oh my God, this is like you're writing my life. Some people seem genuinely at cross with me that I have pointed out something that they didn't want to think about. <laughs> mm. And that's fine. Now people say that like, I'm 35 and I like, uh, this has just made me feel really freaked out and panicked. And it's like, well, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry that up until now, like, a sort of consumerist capitalist culture and the way we use contraception and the world of work and the kind of people you've been in relationships with haven't allowed you to confront that very real thing in your life, which is that there are two absolute certainties. One is that as someone with a womb, at some point, you're not going to be able to bear children. And as someone with a human body, at some point, you're going to die. And those two things are absolutely unavoidable. And we don't know when either of them are going to happen. And that's, of course, a massive facer. And it will give you a freak out if you don't think about it. The only way to not freak out is to think about it and talk about it and build your life around those absolute certainties. Yeah, and it can feel, I think, quite cruel because, as you said in the book, it's a problem that is framed as a woman's problem, even though it should be framed as like a couple's problem. But you say that men get to kind of live this perpetual adolescence because it's really viewed as something women have to get their uh, life in line. Women have to get their careers together. Women have to think about all these things. And for men, they can just opt in or opt out and it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. That feels sexist. But as you just said, it also is just kind of a biological reality. So how have you kind of unpacked that? Well, I think I've talked to, the way I've started to unpack it is by talking to people like trans men and people who have had children in sort of non-traditional setups and to sort of say to people, is this biology or is this conditioning? And the thing that keeps coming back over and over and over again is this is basically conditioning. That cisgendered heterosexual men are not encouraged to think about having children or what they want their life to look like or what kind of relationship they want to have until they have absolutely wrung out every drop of quote unquote fun. (laughs) You know, like there's that I I always relate it to the end of the jungle book where Mowgli goes off with that stupid pot dropping woman um little girl who's so annoying and I think men are really brought up with that kind of view that you have all the fun you can have in the jungle with your mates and then some horrible harridan with like a ticking womb is going to pull them away to the man village and that's the end of fun for all time which is may I say bollocks but also I talked to my partner about this and like when I said I want to have a baby like huge surprise. I'm a 32 year old woman with siblings who, you know, has worked in schools. Like it wasn't completely unexpected that I might be interested in children. He said, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. And I thought, okay, like a rational, intelligent man, he's looked at the state of the world and the climate and politics and our finances and everything and sort of thought, Maybe we should have children, but maybe we shouldn't. Maybe it's irresponsible. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. What he actually meant was, oh, I'm a 32-year-old man who's literally never, ever, ever thought about children. (laughs) Never been asked to babysit. Mm. He'd never been past a baby. No one had ever questioned whether he would be able to have children. Like male infertility is completely absent in this whole conversation, which makes me so cross. If you ever hear people who are quote unquote having trouble, it's always assumed to be the fault of the person with the womb and never the person who has sperm. Similarly, with contraception, I'd say out of the couples I know, the vast majority of contraceptive kind of responsibility is handled by the person with a vagina and a womb. And I could have, let's be generous here, 30 children with men who just didn't bother to check whether I was on the pill or had a coil or anything. They just kind of hoped for the best. And, you know, I was also fairly irresponsible. I didn't always, because I was using contraception, I always didn't always demand that they took equal responsibility and wear a condom. But I, I hate that, that it kind of lands in the lap of women and people with wombs to not only prevent themselves from getting pregnant for years sometimes decades sometimes to huge detriment to their minds and bodies and life but then 
when it's decided that they are going to have children, all the burden of that also then falls into their lap. That you, you know, the assumption is that you have to be making enough money, you have to be like happy enough in your relationship with your family and friends. You have, if there's any problems, it's probably to do with your tubes and holes and all of that shit. And it just struck, strikes me it's 2021 and the equality of sex contraception and child rearing has not changed much since the 60s it just hasn't yeah i i think the the main thing the main equation in this whole thing is so interesting because it just feels like right now myself and my friends are having these conversations just that we don't even mean to like we met up the other day in london fields and we went for a coffee and we were just having this chill relaxed coffee catching up and then suddenly it's like straight to what do you guys think about kids? What do you think about marriage? And it just seems to come up in like every situation now. Um, Yeah, like you get drunk and at five in the morning, suddenly we're talking about this while the men at the other end of the table are just talking about like sport or they just have abs. Well, what are they talking about? That's what I really want to know. Sport, absolutely nothing. (laughs) NFTs. Because we honestly spent, I sometimes feel like that Miranda in that bit of Sex in the City where she's like, when are we going to start talking about something other than men? But I do want to know, like in the years that I spent talking about my body, my sex life, my appetite, my aspirations, my job, my possible future and family and relationships, what were men talking about? Because apparently it wasn't any of those things. No, well, that's so, why like, we're so all these men in their 30s like... and 40s who want to live like 20 year olds, which being 20 isn't even that good. Like what, what, what is it that you particularly want apart from to not die? That's why I've decided it is. Men hate the fear. They hate the feeling that having children basically necessitates the confrontation with the fact that you are not the youngest and that means you're going to die. <laughs> Mm. yeah and and then now it's kind of I just am finding it frustrating because I'm having all of these thoughts and feelings and and you and we're made to think that our partners just have like this whole nother decade at least where they don't have to worry about it and also this this option which is like a very real option of like deciding at 45 that then they want kids and shacking up with someone my age right now and having kids and I'm like this is so unfair I think that should be a crime. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it should be like theft theft of women's time and bodies because <laughs> we've known so many of them, the men who got together with someone in their like 20s and said, oh, I'm not ready. I just need to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm not ready. I need to retrain. I'm not ready. I need to like go traveling. I'm not ready. I need to do this. I'm not ready. I'm not. And then at 35, they then are like maybe ready but they then want to do it with someone who's 25. You know, they don't like, they, 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 or what actually happens, I've seen a lot, is they dick about, they waste five or six years of a woman's life, then they break up and then they get, they somehow manage to get another relationship incredibly easily. Whereas the, the woman who has just had maybe a quarter of her fertile window stolen has to then make this horrible kind of, decision about do you and I mean horrible it's not always horrible but sort of profound decision about am I going to have children on my own am I going to now meet someone to have children with and sort of rush that along do I not have children because she only has five ten years to make that decision and that you know we've all done the maths that if at 35 you meet someone you probably want to have a year or two together and then you'll start trying at 37 you're more likely to experience problems conceiving fertility treatment might be a year waiting list and it takes a year to work and then suddenly you're 40 and your chances of IVF or whatever working are much lower than they were at 35 so I think it should be a crime I think men who take who steal your time like that like if you if you don't want kids or you don't want kids with that person or you're not ready to have kids then stop fucking dating people who want kids Mm. just don't do it anymore (laughs) don't put on your tinted profile that you're interested in a long-term relationship and that you want kids unless you actually are yeah, and I think it's um, – no, I totally agree. No, I same. Think... I'm like, that should be all we throw on in prison. Yes. <laughs> the guillotine. Yeah. Or like um, a fine. It doesn't have to – like, yeah. I'm not definitely going to incarcerate them all, but I do think there should be, like, a reckoning with what they've done, that that yeah. is it's that so is theft. Unfair. It's not unfair. It's Yeah, it's not fair, and it's not – it's also not necessary. Like, what mm-hmm. is it that you – 
I, you know, I now look around at so many of the couples I know and a lot of them, the straight cisgendered couples, the men are so happy to stay at home and watch incredibly boring films about like war and look at weird overhead like maps of Great Britain in 1962 or to watch documentaries about like a street market where they grew up or to play a weird computer game or play like board games whereas the women are like let's go out for dinner let's have people around let's go dancing let's go on holiday and they're like I'm really tired like the idea that men are these like incredibly virile vital beings that are tied down by women like what a load of bollocks like I we've all known enough men who have like spent the day on a sofa watching football highlights in their pants no they're not like desperate to get out there and get living (laughs) so true (laughs) and I think what you said so well in the book as well is that um we've created these like cultural taboos with dating where women can feel as if they they really don't want to come out and say very early, you know, I want children. This is something I'm Mm. thinking about happening in the next two to three years. It's really frowned upon. And it's this kind of culture where women are really encouraged to shut down, not think about or not talk about their desires out of fear of looking overly desperate or overly keen. Um, And that just adds to the problem even more because it's like, it's very hard to organically date someone and fall in love when you know that you want something that you can't tell that person that you want out of fear that they won't want you back. If you're in a state of pretense or deceit or denial, it's very hard for someone to create a genuine and intimate emotional bond with you because you're not showing them all of yourself. And, oh, I have so much to say about this. One, I think Elizabeth Day made this point as well, which I really like. To say to someone, I think you're so amazing and beautiful and fantastic. I would like to bond my DNA with yours and then look after the products of that bond for the rest of my life. Like that's an incredible honor to give someone. Like that is the most beautiful, heartfelt, romantic sort of gesture of love I can possibly think of. To say to someone, I would like to have your baby. Like that means more than anything you could, you know, like it's much more profound than, I don't know, like money or how, you know, all of that other bollocks. Um, and why, as a man, would you not feel that to be a huge tribute to you? Why would you see it as a threat unless you suffer from chronic low self-esteem and you don't feel like you're worthy of that person that makes you run away from the situation? One thing. Second, um, to like to say to someone, I like I want to have a long term relationship and I want to have a family is it shouldn't be unexpected. And those people should like they are the product of someone some at some point wanting or getting pregnant like the the idea that this is an entirely alien concept to men that like the human race is created by a yearning for children like that's why they're alive they should like why don't they talk to their mums and dads about how they came into the world why don't they know this like this is an interesting thing ask a man you know about what it was like when their mum gave birth to them so few of them have ever asked And a lot of them don't even know how their parents met. (laughs) Yep, don't know how their parents met, don't know like whether they were planned, don't know what the birth was like, don't know who looked after them, don't know where they went to nursery. They don't ask anything. (laughs) Why do we even like them? They're such imbeciles. (laughs) I really want to know like what what are men doing all this time? Um, And yeah, and then finally, that thing about like being sort of tucking away your political principles or your maternal hunger or or if you don't want children and you feel like you can't talk about that because that's too like intense and taboo and there's a lot you know I I should say even though I'm someone who talks a lot about wanting to have children I am fully on board respect and admire people who don't want children and choose never to have children and never have families themselves like I think that is an incredibly valuable uh, an important life choice and that their path is as valid as mine if not more so but I think the idea that you couldn't talk about children on either side of the debate with someone that you're sleeping with literally who is like spunking into you if you're straight like why why can't you talk about it what is more to, like why are we meant to just chat about tv for four years and then accidentally get pregnant at someone's wedding I don't really I I'm not great at small talk, but I also think if you if you want to, 
your loving relationship should be as intimate and profound as your friendships. And if you talk about that stuff to your friends, then you should talk to that about that stuff to your partner. Yeah, it's very. That was a big round. No, Actually, it just also, also reminded me that you know if you compare this to your friendships, there's a. I talk in the book about dating a man who was, let's just say, hard work, and he. There was a point where I realised that he was less nice to me than even a casual friend. And yet I was willing, if he had wanted to, to move in with that man and have a baby with him. And he wasn't even as nice to me as the people I worked with. Like that's so bizarre that we don't, our expectations of loving relationships are so low compared to friendships. And actually what you should be looking for in a partner, whether you're going to have children with them or not, is someone who is as kind and affectionate and attentive and generous to you as your friends. Yeah, I actually love in the book how you talked about dating. So I went through a huge breakup at the end of 2019 when I was 28. So similar to the age you were when you and your boyfriend of six years broke up. Um, And I think I went through a really similar range of emotions where I felt like I was a really independent person who, you know, traveled around the world and did my own thing and had my job, my career, and then realized that I was actually really codependent um like couldn't went to a supermarket and um had a panic attack when I was by myself Mm. um all of these all of this all of these things you don't think you're going to feel breaking Mm. up came piling on me like feelings of failure feelings of um like embarrassment worry about being alone worry I would never find anyone it was just like so intense and I love how you talk about in the book like you're just really honest about how a lot of the time dating can really fucking suck and like and we put so much um when we think about dating we're like oh it's so fun you're going out you're meeting all these people you're um so free and you can do whatever you want you can have casual sex and it's like I have friends who have been single for years and they're unhappily single like they actually really do want to meet someone and they spend hours on apps they go on dates all the time they will you know start a conversation with someone and then find the next day that for some reason they've been unmatched or they'll go on a date with someone and get home and never hear from them again after the date going really well and it's like we never talk about this really shitty side of dating because it's kind of the same thing with the with the kids uh like conversation is we kind of always we we end up you said in the book we end up kind of lying to our friends even about what our wants and desires are so even when it comes down to dating like a lot of the time we'll just act like it's fun and fine but it's actually really shit and it and it does kind of split into your friend group when you have friends who are unhappily mm-hmm. single and who are really wanting to find someone who who they love and who loves them and they're incredible people and it's just not happening for them and it's it does get kind of hard when everyone goes on these separate paths yeah it's that funny old thing isn't it that if you if you are if you win the game it's very hard to admit that the game is rigged so if you are in a happy relationship if you meet someone you date them and it works out well. It's sort of uncomfortable to admit that dating is in itself a flawed, toxic system. It doesn't work. Like it's and and then the people who are struggling in that system, are like they feel unsupported because you're like, well, one day you'll meet someone. I met someone, or like you know, such and such met someone at forty. And actually, what we should be saying more honestly is, yeah, this is not a great way to go about meeting people. Like dating, dating apps that like the sort of the formality and pretense and sort of performance of dating, I personally think isn't very helpful. Like I I now see so many friends who they go on one date with someone and then it's like, oh, that didn't work onto the next one. But you can't judge a person on one date. Like you can't decide after one, like one at the moment, freezing glass of wine outside a pub if that's someone that you click with. Cause you don't know, like you don't know what, how, the intersection of your life will play out and you know my my previous relationship we'd been friends for like a year before we got together and we were very happy for six years and there's an alternative world where we stay together and we probably would have made a very nice life and whatever together and so the idea that like by going basically through sort of sex job interviews and auditions through an app for three years is how you're going to find a happy, fulfilling relationship. I just think it's it's such a big ask. And yes, it does sometimes work. But the fact that it does sometimes work doesn't negate the fact that it 
it is a flawed system and it's really difficult. And yet breakups, I want to just pick up on what you said about being codependent, because this is a big thing that I sort of hit on in the book, like in writing the book and also in my actual life, which is we are so negative in our culture about interdependence, emotional, logistical, social interdependence, even financial independence. There is a real, you know, and I'm not blaming Destiny's Child here, but there is a really strong kind of push to be a, an independent woman and to not rely on anyone and to like, you earn your own money, you have your own home, you do your work, you have your friends, you look after number one and that's what you do. And actually that's not how you make a functioning society. A society full of individualists is a broken society that can't support any of the sort of major structures that make life worth living, i.e. families, workplaces, friendships, homes. They only work if people are truly interdependent as in I have a vulnerability or a shortcoming or a thing that I can't deal with. You look after mine and then I'll look after yours. And that's what a healthy relationship is. That's what a family is. That's what a good workplace is or a home. It's the, the, the sort of the strength of character to be interdependent. It's much, much easier to be independent than healthily interdependent. It's really hard because to, to trust someone and love someone and show them all of your flaws and vulnerabilities is really terrifying and it's really hard it's much easier to stay on your own and feel unchallenged by love <laughs> but just I feel blew, like I've no, really that just gone blew on, my brain I feel like I've really no, gone all great. in on Izzy and I don't mean no to. that blew my brain <laughs> A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And you said in the book, which kind of blew my mind as well, like uh, you were you kept kind of dating um, people who ultimately were um, unsuitable or bad for you. And you kind of had this realization that that was you avoiding vulnerability, that it was actually easier to sit in a pub and complain about how all men suck and no one's texting you back and why guys like this than it was to actually engage in relationships that could go somewhere but required you to like admit weakness, admit your desires. Like that kind of yeah. blew my mind too. Cause I think women can be really guilty of getting into this thing of sitting around talking about men, talking about dating, talking about who's texted back complaining, like he's such an asshole all the time when really there is this behavior where we're terrified to showcase yeah. what we really want. That, that sort of realization was almost like falling through the looking glass because when you come, when you, when I had that realization, nothing changed materially, but everything changed profoundly. I realized that for, for at that point, what was it, three years, I had been constantly frustrated in what I thought were my genuine attempts to fall in love. And I couldn't work out why. Why did this keep happening? Like people, the only people that seemed interested in me had girlfriends or lived miles away or were 10 years younger than me or were already attached, or, you know, that or had like addiction issues or had uh, like they were in a very they they were just passing through London on their way to another country like there was just so many things that meant it couldn't happen but we would get so close to it nearly happening and then I realized it was because I was only I was unconsciously following chasing or opening up to those people because on some level I knew it wouldn't happen and actually my friend Martin said to me, <laughs> I was dating a guy 
no, that's a complete lie. I was trying to date a guy um, <laughs> who was clearly in love with someone else. And he said, I think while you still fancy this guy, you just shouldn't date anyone because you're, you're not ready. He said, while you're still fancying assholes, you're not ready to date anyone. Which is like such a great man in their 40s way of explaining to me. But it's true. Like if I, if you are attracted to people who are emotionally unavailable to you or treat you badly or a sort of like complicated to the point where they're unreachable, that means you're not ready for a, a relationship. And the only way you can get ready for a relationship is working on yourself, I'm afraid to say. Like you can't shag your way out of that situation mm-hmm. and you can't uh, you can't shop your way out of it or earn your way out of it or anything. You can't unfortunately move country, although I tried. Like you basically <laughs> have to um, you have to confront the thing in you that makes you feel unlovable. And once you've done that and hopefully resolved it, you will then be drawn to people who can love you and you can love them in return. And it's so profound that like, I think after I sort of had that realization, the next person I dated was wonderful and lovely and it could have worked, but there was like not quite the right spark. And then, and then I met my partner and it was like, I was open and available and honest with him. Like to the point where I was like, I told him everything straight off the bat because I knew that either he was in or out and I wasn't going to enchant and, you know, like trick and reel him in and then one like eventually reveal my true self. I was like, here it is. This is who I am. If you want me, then love me and I'll love you in return. If you don't want me, then that's fine. And um, so far he's still here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, do, I do the same. I like, I'm like, I'm like oh I said to my current um partner I was like I this is the craziest that I'll ever be and then everything's relaxed afterwards but like in the first (laughs) few months I literally was like this is my trauma I see a therapist every week for this and like lockdown has made things even way more intense because now we've we've literally had conversations about like marriage and kids and futures and how Mm. different our outlooks are in life that we probably wouldn't wouldn't have had for years down the track like most couples and then you're like holy fuck we're in completely different headspaces um but yeah just being super like up front at the start and then I was like then everything's just relaxed because now I've got that all all this like (laughs) yeah the pandemic's really turbocharged that yeah that sort of evolution hasn't it and also I know people who I think because of the pandemic have decided to have children on their decided to get pregnant on their own a few women and a few men and it's that's also interesting to me because it's like those people are now so much more content and calm because they've taken that I think this is again we haven't moved on much from the 60s we have this view that you have to meet someone form a romantic relationship with them then get pregnant with them and then raise a family with them it really doesn't have to be that way we know you can get pregnant have a baby then fall in love with someone and then live a life as a family after that or you can meet someone decide to co-parent together never be romantically involved have a baby like there's so many different ways of doing it and the people I know who have stopped telling themselves that they've got, oh my God, I've only got three years to meet someone, fall in love, get pregnant and have a baby before I'm 40 or 45 or 50 or I get made redundant or whatever. It's like that has all been washed off them and they just seem so much calmer because they've confronted the thing and they've taken action on it. And I think that it's a beautiful thing to see. It's really scary and really hard. And, you know, access to that kind of thing is still sort of systematically quite unfair if you're in a same-sex relationship you can't get IVF on the NHS in most places if you're a single woman you can't get IVF on the NHS even if you have yeah even if you own your home and have a good job you can't get IVF if you have a boyfriend you can it's so horrible um but yeah the old the old being yourself the single least useful and actually most profound piece of advice that anyone ever gives you when you're dating I think what we don't I don't mean be yourself. I mean, like, admit your vulnerability and then hand that over to someone else. And then if they can look after your vulnerability for you, then that's a good relationship. If they can't handle your vulnerability, it will never be a good relationship. One part of the book that had me texting Grace um, like a maniac was when you 
talked about your best friend Alice getting pregnant and you and you <laughs> and you said that um you know obviously as women all throughout our lives we've had people around us getting pregnant we've had our high school friends everybody who owns a Facebook account like people are pregnant all the time but when it's your best best friend it's just like this whole different feeling and how you just were saying that you just yearned for another night of like drinking and smoking and dancing and without any responsibilities and without mm. any worries in the world. And I thought about how on Sunday I went to like this really relaxed barbecue with one of my best friends in the world who we've been through everything together, now live in London together. And it was supposed to be just a relaxed barbecue. I was like, I'm not drinking much. And then it ended up at like 10 p.m. of us <laughs> dancing in this lounge with the lights off to ABBA and like having the funnest night of our lives. And I was like, we just won't be able to do that once someone has kids and – Grace has always wanted kids and I've always been really ambivalent about mm. kids. Um, and I was very much like, I don't want them. And now I'm 30 and I'm like, I don't think I want them. But mm -hmm. then even reading that, I was like, God, what the fuck do I want? And how are we so ambivalent about like a question that you have to figure out pretty soon? Well, I'd say about that, that's because, <laughs> that's because you are taking the decision as it is, like you are seeing that as, as an important decision as it is. So that means already mm. you are far and away better placed to make that decision than people who don't think about it as something serious. The people who are like, I don't know, maybe. Like, I'm like, mm, I don't think you realize what it is to actually become a parent. <laughs> yeah. It's much like- It's, it's not box dyeing your hair. <laughs> <laughs> it's much healthier to spend years feeling completely paralyzed by the decision because it is- huge and it's irreversible and it's really hard work and so of course there is some ambivalence about that I think whether like the thing I say to people is if you did then decide to have a baby I would trust you as a parent much more if you had spent 10 years not wanting one because it means you've actually really thought about what it might entail mm. and if you choose not to have a baby I will trust you in that because you have really thought about it and it's a like informed decision. Uh, sorry, before that, we were talking about when my friend got pregnant and I went nuts. <laughs> I mean, I still do. I still find, I have a baby and I still find it really hard when people very, very close to me are getting pregnant again, because I think we are social animals, right? That's what I've already been talking about. We measure our progress through life in accordance to the progress of the people around us like that's how we not just success but everything like if all your friends if all your friends get a really good job at 20 you would probably think that was normal if all your friends get a really good job at 30 you'll think that is normal if all your good friends never get a really good job you'll think that is normal the same applies to having kids so I think when someone has a baby at whatever age you think oh shit we're meant to be having babies now <laughs> and so it throws it throws you into a state of sort of self-analysis and self-reflection and I think that's a lot of what happened when Alice got pregnant yes there was a bit of me that thought oh, I wish you'd told me that this was coming so we could have had like that one last magical night but there was also a bit of me that was thinking fuck I've been left behind again now I'm left behind she's doing something and she didn't tell me and I'm out of sync and all my friends are going to do this I'm single I am suddenly the outlier in a group and because we're all little hairless monkeys our one of our great overriding instincts is to stay in the group and what when someone gets pregnant you're sort of being pushed out of the group or it feels like that because they are taking a step that you are not alongside them with at that time. I don't know what it's like for people who plan to have children at the same time. I find that very weird and <laughs> like not weird in a negative way. Yeah. I just can't imagine if, you know, if her and I had sat down and said, do you want to have babies? Yes, I do. Well, should we both start shagging on, on October the 4th? Like that. Oh, I that quite love that. Do you? <laughs> twins. Grace, yeah, twin sit me twins. down. Um, yeah, I like, I'm just not that organized. Maybe that's the problem. I don't, I had to open an Excel spreadsheet the other day and I genuinely laughed out loud because it had been so long since I did anything that organized. Mm. It was like, it was like seeing a photo of myself at 13. I was like, oh my God, Excel, <laughs> I've forgotten about you. And I think, I think deciding to have a baby at the same time as your best friend is like the Excel of fertility, the Excel spreadsheet. 
I loved how you were honest about those feelings of like jealousy or confusion or competitiveness, because I think it's so common and it's still kind of a taboo that women don't like to talk about, even though it really affects friendships and fractures Mm. friendships. I remember, for example, um, Lena Dunham wrote that really great essay in Harper's about coming to terms with her own infertility. Mm. And she said she had to leave group chats um, that she was in with friends who were all pregnant And they were really upset with her because they were like, you know, you're one of my best friends and you couldn't be happy for me in the most exciting, confusing time of my life. And she was saying, you know, I feel bad and selfish about that, but you can't understand that every time I saw a pregnancy announcement or text, it was like the most existential gut-wrenching experience I'd had. And I think there's women aren't really taught how to negotiate those things because we still don't talk about it. We're not taught to negotiate it because we're told that it's wrong and we shouldn't feel like that, which is a fucking unhelpful way to resolve a situation. Just telling someone they shouldn't have a feeling has never, in my knowledge, solved a feeling. Um, And I think, you know, if if you are struggling in a social situation, either because, because of whatever, love, people having babies, people earning money, people having houses. If that is upsetting to you for whatever reason, probably because you feel like you should have it and you don't, it causes less harm for you to absent yourself and explain why than to stay in and then let that resentment or unhappiness or sort of self-criticism well up inside you. Like I think if I hadn't said to friends, like I... I didn't go to weddings. There was a big chunk of my life where I just didn't go to weddings because I found them too hard and too upsetting. And so I said to people, I'm really sorry I can't come. I don't, I'm, I'm really sorry I just can't do weddings. It would have been far worse for me to go to the wedding, spend four hours getting riled up into a state of like absolute like dis- despair and like fury, got shit faced, thrown up, shouted at people and had sex in a car, which is what <laughs> I probably would have done. Like much better to be honest and say to people like, I can't handle this. Same with, if your friend's having babies and if you, you can say to them, like, I'm sorry, I'm finding this a real struggle. I really want to be there for you, but I find it very hard. <sighs> you are going to do less damage than if you go around and just as they on like an hour and a half sleep and their nipples are like cracked and they're still bleeding out the like fragments of their uterine lining, you burst into tears and say, it's so unfair. Like that is worse. That is worse than not going around, I think. Or it depends on how you play it and what your relationship is like with that person. Um, I would also say, oh, that just made me think of something about when you turn up. No, I can't, I can't remember. It's gone. Um, but yeah, that bit, the, the feeling, the feeling jealous. After I wrote that, I had like such a flood of people saying, oh my God, no one's ever said this out loud. And I felt this for years and it's so nice to hear. And like any feeling, when you feel like you're not the only person in the world to have it, it immediately gets better. It immediately alleviates. It doesn't go away. It doesn't solve the issue. But I think feeling like you're the only person to have ever had a taboo thought is much, much worse than knowing that everyone occasionally has taboo thoughts or most people. Mm. It's also just this time in our lives where everyone is on such different paths. It's like one person's Mm. buying. So people back home, some of our friends are buying their like second houses. Yeah, And that makes me think, fuck, what am I doing with my life? But then they'll be looking at us being like, they're living in London, freelance, traveling, not right now because of COVID, but like traveling around and doing all these other things and they'll be wanting that. And it's like, you just can't yeah. see beyond it. It's like my, it's like my single friends are looking at my friends who are married and wanting that. And the married friends are oftentimes looking at the friends who are single and wanting that. Yeah. I had, a, there was a few, there was someone who reviewed the book and she sort of said, oh, we're obsessed with like naming and delineating parts of women's lives. Can't we just be like, can't we just be left alone? Fine. Um, but I did think <laughs> like, the, like, and she had had her children very young. And so she, like, she had obviously never gone through the panic years. Mm. Absolutely fine. So she wouldn't recognize it. And therefore, because she didn't recognize it, she didn't value it. But I do think that's exactly what you've described. That period between 28 and 35 is so bizarre because people who maybe two years earlier, you were sharing a flat, you were in exactly the same state romantically, financially, in terms of your work, everything, are suddenly like 
a decade apart in their life choices and lifestyle. You know, like it's, I had friends at 28 who were married, owned a house and had two kids. And I had friends at 28 who were like sleeping on a rollout bed in their drug dealer's front room. Like it was, there was such a difference in how we were living our lives. And yet we'd all been at the same place very, very recently. And I do think that's interesting. And it kind of supports the idea that this is an in itself a transformative period. Because what, you know, I can't, I don't think between 48 and 55, there is that much change Mm. and difference. And it's just because having a kid, I think, is it literally is the only thing I can think of where your entire life has to completely transform Mm. almost overnight. Like you, there isn't really a balance between living the party girl lifestyle and having a newborn. Oh, (laughs) thank you. You've now reminded me exactly what I wanted to say, which is if that happens with your friends and they're having babies and you can't, you're not in a place where you are comfortable with that. Bear in mind that in three or four years time, they will come out of that again. Like my son is now three and a half. And I can interact and socialize with my child-free friends almost like I hadn't had a baby. Like at the times when he's asleep or he's at nursery or my partner's looking after him. Like I have sort of come out from behind that eclipse. And, you know, for all sorts of people, it will happen at different times. It depends on if you breastfeed, what childcare arrangements you have, all of that sort of stuff. But it's not permanent. Like the transformation is enormous and some parts of it are permanent. Like they will always love their child more than you. And that's quite a sad thing to realise, but it's also in in an arguably true. But they will not always be going to bed at 8pm, be tired, be like eating extraordinarily weird meals one-handed while crying into their phone. Like that, that's only a sort of, baby stage and once they come out of the baby stage they will be there for you again and you will be there for them again and like if you can ten attend to that relationship enough then that then you can pick it up again when you're both able to if you if you are not kind and supportive in that time then yeah they might not want you back when they come out the other side <laughs> We wanted to talk about work because I think work is such a huge part of this. And I think that I have put this pressure on myself, which is obviously informed by society, that I can't have kids until I've got my career in this like glowing place. Mm. Um, but then I'm also like no one has their their career perfect by 30 because 30 is usually the time where you're like, okay, now I know what I want to do, so I'm going to start working on that. Or it's the time where – you start to build confidence and momentum in your job so you can do your great work for the next 10, 20 years. Um, So would you mind maybe just talking a little bit about how we can like bust that myth that you need to have all your chips lined up before getting pregnant? Yes. Well, there are sort of a few things that I have to say about that. One is that I thought getting pregnant and having a baby would ruin my career in the same way that I thought it would ruin my vagina. Actually, both are still here um, and both as tight as ever. That's um, uh, Actually, I found as someone who was working freelance, and I know that's like doesn't speak to everyone's um, experience. I suddenly had a reason to value my work and time in a way that I couldn't have before I had children. Like if someone said to me, oh, like, can you just turn this thing around? Um, we need it by two and it, we can pay you like 45 pounds. It'd be like, right, well, no, because <laughs> in order to get that done in two hours, I'm going to have to spend an hour and a half, like feeding, changing, attending to my baby in the hope that they then fall asleep. Then I can do the work and send it over to you. And then they'll wake up and I won't be able to do the amends. So one, you need to give me more time. And two, if the, like, I, I can't do all of that for 45 pounds. Like it's not, it's not worth my time. Like if I open that out for my, my son today is at nursery. Him being at nursery today is going to cost me seven pounds an hour. So you're going to have to pay me seven pounds an hour before I even start earning any money. <laughs> There's an Irish saying that my boyfriend's granny said to me, which is that babies mink. Babies bring money and friends. 
And I actually think it's a really nice way to look at it, that sometimes the act of having children will galvanize you in ways that you haven't had before because there's a pressure and there's a, a sort of value to your time and your effort and your energy that you don't have necessarily beforehand. I didn't. Like I didn't, I didn't really value my time because I had nothing else depending on it. <laughs> Whereas now, like I did my tax return in like three hours after I had a baby because that was the time when he was asleep in a day. The year before, it probably took me like three days because I would fanny around. Um, also, the idea that you have to have your career in a good place before you have a baby, that's, that sort of comes to the heart of the, the conflict that we punish women if they have children too early and we punish women if they have children too late. But if they try and have children in the bit between, i.e. in their panic years, we tell them that they're ruining their career. Mm. So it's, it's another way to make women feel that they're the, fault, they're the problem rather than the sort of systematic problem, which is the gender pay gap, unaffordable childcare, a sort of sexist and racist government and sort of worldview, all of those things. It's not you as a woman who needs to get your shit together. It's us as a society who needs to get our shit together in order to allow parents to have paying jobs or people parents to get paid a universal basic income <laughs> so true um okay leaving you on a um very relaxed and light question for all of us Great. freaking out about the panic years um who are trying not to let child rearing take up all our thoughts but also don't want to bury our heads in the sand about fertility and later regret it what do we do <laughs> what the fuck do you do <laughs> <laughs> um I think if we're going to talk about, I, th I think something I'm starting to believe and tell people is the most useful thing you can do is interrogate all the stories you're telling yourself about who you are and what you want. So if your story is that you want to have a baby, actually interrogate that. What is it that you want from having a baby? Is it unconditional love? Is it a partner who is somehow uh, like, interconnected with you for life? Is it feeling special on a bus? Is it a, a body that looks transformed? Is it the, like the Titanic accomplishment of giving birth? What is it that you want that you call having a baby? It might be three or four, none of those things. If you say, I want a really good job, what is it that you actually want that you call having a good job? Is it to be occupied, have a sense of purpose, a way to explain to your great auntie Nora why you're still single? Is it to be able to live on your own? Is it to meet people who you might be able to have casual sex with? There are lots of things that we use these blanket terms for. If you say, I want to be in love, interrogate that. What is it that you actually want that you call being in love? Is it the absence of loneliness? Is it to feel like you're keeping up with your friends? Is it to have someone to put up shells for you? Is it somewhat, is it so you feel normal? I'm not saying that any of these things are wrong and any of these things aren't valid. I'm just saying underneath every supposed desire, there is a whole range of smaller, truer desires that you can then achieve through different means. You don't have to have a baby to experience a sense of purpose. You don't have to be in a relationship not to feel lonely. You don't have to have a good job to live on your own. These are all, if you, if you drill down to what it is you really, really want, stripped away from the sort of blanket narrative of sort of social convention, you are much more likely to be able to achieve it than if you sort of are sort of thrusting around in a general area of something that you call having a baby. <laughs> Mm, that's so true. <laughs> Mind blown again. Come, can you come to London and we have yes. wine and talk about yes. other stuff, but also yes. this more? Yes. And I will let you talk. No, uh, no. I don't want to talk. To <laughs> we have nothing to say. I'll yeah. let you talk and I'll tell you my whole birth. No, you've read it. This is the weird yeah. thing. You, you know all of it. You know everything about me. I've got nothing to say. I need to hit. Yeah, that would be lovely. What, It'd be really um, fun. What I wouldn't end on was just to say thank you for 
your honesty in the book, but even just like you saying at 29 and saying where you were as an assistant editor and things, it made us just, both of us are just so stressed all the time about being successful and stressed all the time about like mm-hmm. goals and looking at everyone else and where all these incredible, like I look around, I'm like, everyone's an author. And then I was like, no, yeah, I yeah. wasn't an author until much later than the age you are now, but instead you're just, you're not even, yeah. So it just like helped me put things into perspective. Shall I tell you the lovely thing to end on? Debbie Harry was 30 when the first Blondie single came out. There's Whoa. no fucking rush, guys. Yeah. That's crazy. That's <laughs> Isn't that best. good? I'm going to write that down and yeah. stick it above my... <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. She, she, they didn't even release a single until she was 30. Wow. Wow. Um, oh, thank you again so, so much for your time. Yeah. <laughs> thank my you pleasure. Now. Please okay. come to London. Thanks Come now. to London. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. 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 Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.